He was the son of a president, a three-year-old saluting his father's casket. He was Jackie's John John. He was a billionaire's stepson. He was a student actor. He was the dream of many young girls. He was People Magazine's sexiest man alive. He was a lawyer. He was the co-founder of a major publication. But most of all, he was beloved by those that knew him. He was JFK Jr. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my left, watching America. On my left, panic in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. It is sad when expectations are unrealized, and even more so when it is the result of a tragic accident. Such was the case on July 16, 1999, when John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr.'s plane crashed into the Atlantic Ocean. He had piloted himself and his wife and her sister in circumstances of poor visibility and became confused. His loss immediately impacted the world. The disappearance of John F. Kennedy's plane is dominating the news, not just in the United States, but around the globe. Russia. The Kennedy clan Germany. Israel. France. And in Britain too, the magic of the Kennedy myth. Understandably, JFK Jr.'s loss impacted family and friends even more severely. One good friend of JFK Jr.'s was Steve Gillen. For Gillen, JFK Jr was more than a name, more than a celebrity, but rather a treasured part of his life. It is my great privilege to welcome to Watching America Stephen M. Gillen. And Stephen M. Gillen is, in fact, the author of America's Reluctant Prince, which is about JFK Jr. I don't think it's going too far or being melodramatic to say that with the death of JFK Jr. in 1999, with the plane crash, there was more or less a national stillborn dream, for there were many hopes associated with this very significant, intelligent, bright, and charming personality. No one should know better, perhaps, than my guest, Stephen M. Gillen. He knew him at Brown University. And I'd like to begin, Stephen, by um, uh, reference, referencing something that is a very prominent memory for you in your first <laughs> inauspicious association with him. You said that you grew up in a middle-class family outside of Philadelphia and, as self-described, were an average student who made your way to Brown University. And as a graduate student under the tutelage of Dr. James T. Patterson, you were expected to deliver a graduate lecture. And you chose, of all things, the topic of JFK and civil rights. And in pursuit of this topic, there you were in Manning Chapel in the classroom, ready to deliver your speech, when in through the door, lo and behold, comes, well, somebody with coiffed hair, very liberally, generously blown, 
and it is JFK Jr. himself. Tell us about that. <laughs> I, uh, I feel like I would have passed out just trying to tell the story. <laughs> um, so, yep, so you're, you set the scene perfectly. The one thing I would add is that I had never spoken publicly before at any time. I had never given a lecture, and here I am standing in front of about 120 bright brown undergraduates. My this James C. Patterson, who I want to be my mentor, uh, is sitting uh, a few feet away from me, and, and so I need to impress him. Mm. And here I am talking about a guy whose son, not only does he wander into the room just at it was 11 o'clock, the lecture, and he wandered in like two seconds before 11, and he walked all the way up, and he literally sat four feet away from me. <laughs> and I completely froze. Now, I spent months working on that lecture. I spent probably two months writing it, researching it and writing it. And I spent a couple, at least another month or six weeks practicing it every day, multiple times a day. And when I was, I was determined not to mess this up. So I get up there, I'm standing there, and I'm, I'm so nervous, I put my hands in my pockets. But I didn't want the students to see how nervous I was. Mm-hmm. And the first line of the lecture was President Kennedy was a pragmatist who did not impose moral solutions on problems. I can remember that. That's 30-plus years ago, and I can remember it. Remember it. Standing there in front of that classroom, I froze. I completely froze. Understandably. I could not remember what it was, what I had to say. So I, this little clock is going off in my head. Like if you have 10 seconds, 9 seconds before you pass out. And I, so I said to myself, look down at your notes. You know, it's right in front of you. So by this point, you know, there are some people, they, reach, they can reach down deep inside and they find that well of strength that gets them through mm-hmm. difficult moments. I'm not one of those people. I hyperventilate. <laughs> so at this point, I couldn't even read my own notes. So I had to blurt something out. I had to say something. I've got this image of of beads of sweat on your forehead dripping on your notes. Is is that pretty accurate? I am in a cold sweat at this point. (laughs) And I blurted out something that I didn't believe then, certainly don't believe now. I said, President Kennedy, um, 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 President President Kennedy, President Kennedy had no moral scruples. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I, I I have no idea where it came from. But that's what came out. And I thought that my career was over that moment. I, I owe my entire professional career to a female student in the back of the room who was far enough away from us to think that it was all a joke. And she laughed, and the whole class erupted in laughter. And they thought it was just a joke. And I, I broke the ice. I went on. I gave yes. a lecture. And although I was somewhat critical of John's father, John had a very sort of objective view of his father, his strengths and his limitations, and um, and he, gradu- he came up to me afterwards and congratulated me, and that's how I, that was my initial introduction to John Kennedy Jr. Wow, uh, there are a few to top initial introductions in, in that particular story. I'm going to go for a moment to the back of the book, which uh, most uh, authors loathe for people to do, but it's just one line, and it's appropriate, or actually two lines. It says, in the, your words, I'm honored to have called him my friend, my heart ached the day he died, and it aches still. One of the things I was impressed with with the book is despite your uh, friendship and uh, to some degree intimacy with him, it's a very balanced book. It's not all uh, glory and delight. Um, you recognize the man's weaknesses and his strengths uh, quite evenly back and forth. So it's not a, a puff piece by any stretch of the imagination. 
I, I'm curious to what extent in your friendship and association with him did he talk about his earlier years? Now, there are certain things we know as a given. Um, certainly, everybody has that indelible image of a little boy in a coat buttoned up saluting his daddy with a, with a flag of the United States going across being drawn on a carriage by, by horses. Uh, we have also, perhaps some people have said that President Kennedy exploited his children when Jackie was away one weekend by having <laughs> Time Life and other people come in and take pictures. And we have the, the uh-huh. images, of course, of uh, John Jr., uh, being yeah. under the table, the presidential desk and what have you. Mm-hmm. Did he ever reference any of these periods of time or, or were they too far in the background to be uh, significantly important to bring up in the moment? They popped up once in a while. Uh, the, the rule that I had with John was that um, you know, we all get to tell our own story. So I got to tell John who I was and he didn't he couldn't go to a newspaper and check whether it was true or not. Mm-hmm. I got to define who I was to him. And I never wanted to deny John that opportunity. So I never read anything about him. And I knew I knew I knew as a story and I knew it that about him up until the day his father died. And then really I don't pick up the story again until I meet him uh back in nineteen eighty one. And uh so he would occasionally uh, say really insightful things, uh, revealing things about his youth. Uh, but I, you know, I never really followed up. Um, I always was so protective of his privacy. Um, I remember one story that that he told me that I remember so well. We, you know, we played racquetball a lot. We joined this gym in Seekonk, Massachusetts, which was about a 20-minute drive from the Brown campus, and we used to go there a couple times a week and play racquetball, and that's how I really bonded with John, was we would we'd work out, and then we'd go and have dinner somewhere, and we'd spend a lot of time talking. And I'll never forget, we were talking about his uncle, Bobby, and uh, he told me this story about how in 1968, when Robert was running for the Democratic nomination, uh, he was um, uh, in New York a lot, and whenever he was, he would come by... Um, uh, John's place, his mom's place, mm-hmm. um, and tuck John and Caroline into bed. So it must have been shortly after Christmas because John had been, John had a easy bake oven, and some of your listeners may remember what made, they, by what they were. made by Mattel. Made by Mattel. Mattel. Yes, right. That's right. Um, and uh, John was sitting on the floor baking a cake. So Robert came in and he sat down next to him and he said, "John, what do you want to do when you grow up?" And John said, I want to be a baker. And the way John described this, it's that Robert, his whole facial expression changed, and he grabbed him gently but firmly and said to him, you're a Kennedy. You've been given great gifts. You have a responsibility to help other people. You can't just go off and be a baker. And you know, John remembered that story so well. And to me, that was so revealing mm. about the culture in which he grew up in. I mean, the, the sense of public service, public responsibility that was just infused in, in, in him. Um, and there were other stories like that. Uh, he, he, he never, you know, he, the only time he ever said anything to me about the assassination was uh, when John was supposed to go to Cuba to, to meet with Castro, and there was all this back and forth that went on, and he finally went. And um, and some people, you know, 
said that maybe John should ask him about the assassination, which John had no intention of doing. But he said very cryptically to me one time, he said, Bobby knew everything. Mm. And um, he said it in such a way as that Bobby knew things that nobody else knew. But, you know, once again, I, I did not, I knew it was a painful topic for him. Um, and I did not pursue it. Um, but there are little comments like these. He didn't talk much. You know, he talked about his father. Um, so John's, the way John, this is really sort of, I found very revealing about John and the way he referred to his father. So when I first met him, this is in the early 80s, he referred to his father as President Kennedy. And then wow. by the late 80s, early 90s, he called him my father. That's and in those last couple in those last couple of years, he called him daddy. He would say, My daddy did this or my daddy did that. And and to, I'm not a psychologist and I certainly don't want to put John on the couch. Mm. But to me, the way I interpreted that is that John as John became more comfortable with the possibility of going into politics, with, with became more comfortable with, with acknowledging that that was his calling. He became more willing to accept his father and his father, his father on more intimate terms, and refer to him yes. the way I, Al would refer to him. I, I, I would think of it as being posthumous implied intimacy, progressive intimacy, as the years went by, by the very terms that you've invoked that he used. It's, it's very interesting, extremely intriguing. Yeah. Um, he obviously carried this mantle of, of comparison with his father. Uh, and their, their paths were even early on were, were decidedly different. Uh, his father went to Choate Rosemary Hall in Wallingford, Connecticut, and then went on to um, go to Harvard. Uh, as we know, uh, his son, Junior, decided to go to Brown University and not Harvard. What was the reasoning behind that? What, did he not have the sufficient um, grades to get into Harvard or, or Panache or Paul? Uh, not to dismiss Brown in any way, but why was his right. decision to take Brown? John always said that he never wanted to do what people expected him to do, ah. uh, that he wanted to set out on his own path, um, which is why, not only why he went to Brown, but why he started a magazine, uh, which was not something that, that you know, Kennedy's had done in the past. John mm -hmm. had watched some of his cousins go into politics at an early age, what I observed over the years was that John, he spent most of his life discovering who he really was, who he was separate from the person and the expectations that other people, including family members, imposed upon him. And what he once told me that he was actually two people, that he was just John, you know, a typical privileged, obviously, but typical member of his generation. But he played a role his entire life that ever since that moment that you referenced earlier, where John raised his right hand and saluted his father's coffin. I think all the unfulfilled hopes and expectations of his father's presidency transferred to John, and people saw him as the second coming of the new frontier mm. and of Camelot. Right. And John, that was a role that John played. You know, he, he knew why people viewed him the way they did. He, he would perform that role whenever it was necessary, but he never confused that role with who he was as an individual. So John wanted to make these decisions on his own, to set out his own path, 
and not necessarily follow the path that other people expected him to do. And I think the first major break that he makes is by going to Brown uh, rather than going to uh, going to Harvard. It turned out to be a great decision for John. Before uh, that, when I, he was at Phillips Academy in Andover, Mass., were there any indications that he was basically hoeing a path of his own to, of independence, even in his equivalent of private high school days? Well, there was less opportunity to. Um, you know, he went to school uh, in New York for the first two years, and he transferred in his junior year. And he transferred, it's, it's interesting, he transferred in 1976. And what happens in 1976 is that John lost his Secret Service protection. So oh. he ended up, he ended up, um, where he did because his mom was a, felt that he'd be safer mm-hmm. at a remote rural school than he would be walking around the streets of New York without any protection. Well, I hope the audience will forgive our non, uh, non-linear approach to my questions here, but l- <laughs> let's reel back even further. Uh, obviously, his mama was Jacqueline Bouvier originally. She went to Vassar College and uh, George Washington School University. And she was raised in Manhattan, as uh, as was a familiar territory for, for John Jr. himself. And um, she also had the home Lasata in East Hampton in, in Long Island. But after the tragedy of uh, President Kennedy's assassination, she got involved, as we all know, with, with Onassis. What was happening to John and Caroline during the Onassis years? Where were they? Yeah, well, first of all, to put this into some context, so John loses his father... Uh, at the age of three, he's buried on John's third birthday. And then Robert, his uncle, becomes like a father figure to him mm-hmm. until he's assassinated in 1968. Right, 51 years. So, yeah. so Jackie marries uh, Onassis for lots of reasons. She actually found him interesting, and, uh, and uh, it wasn't just for money, but it was one of the biggest issues was security. He could provide security for his children. He owned an island called, mm-hmm. called uh, Scorpios. Mm-hmm. He had a larger uh, security detail than the president of the United States. So all of that found it attractive. But what I was surprised by was how close John was to Anasis. I mean, I, and I learned this. John used to, uh, I was at his, apart- at his mom's apartment once, and he was just showing me around. And they have, in the back in the where the bedrooms were, there's a large piece of plexiglass that had lots of, it had their family photos, the photos that they take, not the ones that we've, we've seen. Right. And there were a lot of John with Onassis fishing, uh, playing on the boat. And I said to him, I said, well, I'm surprised there's so many pictures here of Onassis. And John said, yeah, they were wonderful years. He was really good to me. And I spoke to Christina, uh, Tina Roswell, who spent a lot of time, who was Anthony's cousin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, she spent a lot of time uh, on Scorpios with John and Caroline, and she said that Ari just loved uh, playing with John, and he doted on John, and that, that they clearly had a, a you know a close relationship. Obviously, it got complicated when when the marriage was breaking up, and there was a lot of back and forth in the news, uh, and I think that soured things somewhat, but John never lost his affection for uh, for Onassis, and, and, the, the, and he, he just looked back with, with wonderful, 
thoughts and memories of his time when Scorpios. So he returns to the United States uh, and uh, indeed, as you got to know him at that point at Brown University, there with famous people, uh, when one is in their company, they uh, are very often aware of how others are perceiving them. And it takes some time to get beyond that, if you will, filter of separation. Uh, how long did it take for you to get some semblance of an idea of who the real John was? Well, that's a great question. Um... I had to think about that. When did that happen? Well, I can tell you a moment that certainly revealed it to me, and it may have happened sooner, but on the day, the the graduation weekend from Brown, um, we had gone uh, to the gym to this place in in Seekonk, and and we played racquetball, we lifted weights, and then we got something to eat, and he he always called me Stevie, to Stevie. I've got to get back to campus. My mom's arriving, and and uh, I've got to get ready for you know the graduation, which is going to be the next day. And uh, so he dropped me off uh, right by the campus green, and there's this patio that you can sit out on and look out over the green. And I was sitting there, mm-hmm. and I see this big this circle of uh, of people. And they're, you know, back in those days, they held these cameras that probably weighed 100 pounds. Um, and I'm like, wow, what's going on? And I look, and I get look close. I said, "There's John. Like, what are these people doing to John?" I'm like, "Oh, right. Mm. He's, he's he's John Fitzgerald Kennedy Jr." <laughs> and but for a moment there, I was really I was puzzled by why these people were paying so much attention to John. So, at, certainly by that point, I had realized it. But I, I I don't know if there's a moment where, you know, I could tell you that it just it it happened. It, but it, it evolved over time. There's that peculiar dynamic, though, when you when you are in the company of famous people. You almost want to say, look, I, I'm, I'm sincerely interested in you just for who you are, not for right. what you're known as. So it's, it's this unstated uh, awkwardness that goes yeah. on for some time, and then it finally dissipates with people. And, and there's usually a moment, as, you, as you've just described, that lets you know, yes, it's over. We don't have yeah. to worry about this anymore. I want to ask you about his relationship with his sister. Uh, mm. uh, one of the things that I, I noted that you had written you said in your book, and I'm going to read from it a direct quote, I thought I knew John well, but I was surprised by many things. I learned over the course of my research. I discovered that the last few months of his life were among the most difficult he had ever confronted. He was burdened with enormous personal and professional troubles. He feared losing the two people he was closest to, his wife and his best friend, Anthony Radziwill. His relationship with his sister was strained. Now, that was just prior to his obvious demise. Was it always a strained relationship no, or was it seasonal no. or cyclical? Oh, it was, it was a difficult. It was just that they had a bad couple of years near the end. They had enormous affection for each other, and John adored his sister. Uh, I mean, they had been through so much together that uh, they were different people. They had very different personalities, but, um, but they they recognized that they had this unique life and they were the only two who understood what it was like to grow up the way they did. So they, so no, John, John adored his sister. There was just, you know, what happens and it happens a lot of times uh, in relationships when people get married, uh, things get complicated. Mm. And, and that's what happened in his relationship with his sister. Um, And it's so, you know, it's just another layer to the tragedy is that, I mean, they would have worked things out. They would have. It was just a. It was just a bump in the road. 
but tragically, John died before they had they had the opportunity to do so. Well, let's take a look at his relationship with his mother. As we know, he did a very novel thing by creating a magazine, which was largely mm-hmm. misunderstood. Uh, people weren't quite sure what it really was. It was a synthesis mm-hmm. of social commentary and politics and mm-hmm. um, uh, smart, highly witted material and sexy and glamorous at the same time. So it really didn't have a particular niche that was was definitively set aside in the public's mind. It, it kind of morphed as well as it progressed. But obviously his mother was involved with publishing. Uh, she had mm-hmm. gone to work for Viking Press as an editor and then later on Doubleday. Do you think that that was part of the influence which attracted him to working, if you will, in a literary form by at least in part establishing his magazine, George? You know, it's possible. That's a good observation. Um, uh, I don't think that she was um, a driving force. Um, the idea, actually, for George Magazine came from a guy named Michael Berman, mm-hmm. who became John's business partner and, and co-owner of George. Uh, he came up with the idea of a magazine uh, that would mix uh, politics and popular culture. His mom connected John with lots of people uh, who would give him advice on how to launch a magazine and how, you know, how, how a magazine is designed. But she was not that actively involved in encouraging it. Remember, she's, I mean, she's getting sick mm. um, and dies right around the time that John is developing George Magazine. She plays the role, as she does throughout his life, of providing him with access to people who could help him. I know she made one comment one time. The first time John explained it to her, she said, this isn't going to be like the mad magazine of politics, is it? (laughs) Um, So clearly uh, she didn't understand the concept either at first, anyhow. Right. Well, the magazine was quite uh, a curious um, work and and engaging. I mean, he hired people like Norman Mailer. uh, Mm -hmm. But uh, in contrast, too, he had conservatives, and listeners won't believe this, but he had people like Laura Ingram and Ann Coulter write for George as well. Uh, and then he took tremendous risks. He did a expose work on Bob um, Woodward, which was not mm-hmm. very favorable. Uh, it pr- mm-hmm. portrayed him as being rather, as you say, ruthless and manipulative and, and dishonest. Mm-hmm. But he decided to go ahead with it anyway. And then he mm-hmm. really uh, got the ur and anger of Scientologists because he did an right. early piece in Scientology long before it was fashionable. And David Miscavige himself tried to track down John Jr., and cause uh, all sorts of uh, uh, trouble and stress for him to the point that he was followed, he believed, by Scientologists. Uh Tell us about that. So John, uh, first of all, you have to understand John's philosophy. I mean, John was, um, he he was a Democrat just because it was in his blood. But in terms of his way he thought about politics, it wasn't fully developed at this point, but he's, he's not partisan in any way at all. Um, he really, you know, the magazine was designed to be apolitical, and that really was a reflection of John's view of politics. Um, and he was not afraid to uh, to go after uh, some icons, whether they were on the left or the right. Uh, he gave, as you mentioned, he gave a couple of young, unknown conservative writers like Ann Coulter, Really, their big break uh, writing for a, for a large magazine, but he 
the Scientology thing was the only one, the only time where he was he got scared. Scared, I wouldn't scared too hard of a word, John. I never saw John scared, but he... Um, troubled? He felt... Yeah, he was troubled. He he felt that they they were threatening a massive lawsuit. John, you know, was used to being followed and having cameras follow him, but he noticed in this time when they're working through the final edits of the of the story that he and, and Elizabeth Mitchell, the uh, the editor at the time, were both being followed by lots of people who were taking pictures of them everywhere they went. The uh, the Scientology threatened a, a lawsuit against Hachette and against John uh, and his business partner. And it was an incredibly courageous decision for John to go ahead. They hired someone to fact-check the story, do an independent fact-check of the story to make sure that their sources were all in line and it could all be passed legal muster. And once, you know, I think he got a call late one night that the story passed legal muster and he said, we're going with it in the morning. Um, and that took a lot of courage. It really did. For John to do something like that. I mean, he, and I guess you're like, John, John, John was a formidable, formidable figure. A lot of people won't remember, but George was also a fun magazine. It really was. I remember they one antic they pulled. Uh, they had uh, somebody from from the staff of George call up various senators and congressmen and ask them, "What do you think of the war going on in Fredonia?" <laughs> Which <laughs> some may realize Fredonia was a fictitious uh, land right. in Duck Soup, the the Marx Brothers movie from 1933. And the amazing thing is, you had all these representatives, oh. elective officials, trying to feign that they actually knew about the war and uh, were saying funny. it's too early to take a position. But I do remember that uh, uh, absolutely, completely, clearly. Um, I want to remind everyone that you're listening to Watching America. My guest is Stephen M. Gillen, and he is the author of America's Reluctant Prince, which is an examination of the life of John F. Kennedy Jr. I want to ask you, when did you see John F. Kennedy Jr. the most vulnerable? Oh, I think, you know, that last year of his life, um, when his mother died, when his mom died, um, John, I, I saw John clearly suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could just see it in his eyes. Um, and what made it harder for him was that everywhere he went, you know, people, complete strangers, with the best of intentions, would come up to him and say, I'm sorry about your mother. But for him, it was just... He couldn't go anywhere without being reminded. He couldn't get away, uh, yes. He couldn't get away from it. I think yeah. that I saw that as a really difficult moment for him. And then those final months of his life uh, that you referenced earlier with his, you know, with Anthony dying. And um, that was, I think that may, with the exception of the death of his father, I think the slow motion death of Anthony Roswell, his best friend and his cousin, was the most difficult thing John had to deal with in his life. Tell me about the the, the falling out between Michael Berman, uh, uh, co-owner of George Magazine. Uh, everything starts out creamy and fine, and then it turns sour. What happened? Well, I mean, a lot of things happened. Um, so in the beginning, when they were starting the magazine, both John and Michael, they made every decision together. Neither one made a decision without consulting the other. But once you started, once they started the magazine, 
it becomes a big enterprise. And they had a fundamental disagreement over how their relationship would work from that point forward. John wanted to develop distinct roles. John was going to be the editor. And Michael was going to be the publisher. Michael was going to handle, you know, the mm-hmm. um, all the, the stuff related to uh, advertising and, and all the responsibilities to go with the publisher. Michael had a very different idea. Michael believed that they would continue to make all of their decisions together. So that was the sort of, the I think, the fundamental difference. And it just uh, it got exacerbated. Michael... Uh, after the first two issues, the readership went down, and Michael felt that John was not being a very good editor. Um, he didn't like some of the choices of the articles, and he made his position known to John. And he became so annoying to John that John would hold, hold his editorial meetings at a hotel near where the offices were because he didn't want Michael walking in. Um, and Michael had, you know, Michael had an abrasive personality, and a lot of the editors. The people who worked there didn't particularly like him. Uh, of course, it's hard when you're, you know, your partner is one of the most famous and charming people on the planet. Mm. Um, so uh, it's hard to have a personality that matches that. But, but I think Michael could have handled lots of situations differently. And I think one of the big breaking points came with the role that Carolyn uh, played at the magazine, which is something that Michael deeply resented. Um Carolyn would. Carolyn Bessett uh, Kennedy were talking Carolyn about. Carolyn Bessett, yeah. first John's girlfriend and then his wife. And uh, you have to realize from her position, Carolyn's being assaulted by the paparazzi. So there's few places that she can go where she feels safe. George is one of them because John's there and everybody in the office has already been vetted. So she spends a lot of time at the office just because it's a safe space for her. But she also got involved in making decisions about what colors. So they would, you know, they would decide on what the magazine was going to look like, what the cover was going to look like. And at the last minute, Carolyn would show up and look at something and say, no, I think you should change it to this. And it would get changed. And Michael, for understandable reasons, found that really difficult. So uh, it just simmered and simmered until finally there was an explosion uh, this would have been in, I think, November of 96, um, where there was an incident and the two of them started pushing and shoving each other and uh, a shirt got torn, got ripped, and uh, and it ended up, it was one of the uh, editors at George called Hachette and said, this is an unsafe work environment, that something has to be done. So they shipped Michael off to another job at Hachette. Um, and uh, Berman has never spoken about John before. He literally has never said a word about him. And um, I, he w- I was fortunate. He, he sat down with me for some 20 hours of interviews and told his side of the story, which helps me to, under- help me to understand better this dynamic and why it happened. And you know, everyone, just about everyone at George has taken John's side. Um, Michael did things wrong, but he also had legitimate grievances that, um, that, um, and, and he, he has great remorse because he, you know, he never spoke with John again. John made a real effort. 
Stephen, I'm, I'm not wishing to hear you speak ill of a friend, uh, certainly not uh, John F. Kennedy Jr., yeah. but one of the things I like about your book is, as I said at the outset, it, it's, it's very balanced. And there were critics of, of John. Uh, there were critics certainly of about a cavalier attitude he had, even with just seemingly insignificant things like returning towels or, or giving people cash that he <laughs> owed them and what have you. Um, do you think it, because of his great wealth, he was so cavalier about possessions that he, he didn't realize that people would like to be reimbursed and perhaps they weren't in the position that he was? Well, it wasn't. I don't think it came down to that. I think John could be thoughtless. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know where that personality trait came from, uh, but he could be, he could be incredibly generous mm-hmm. and thoughtful, but he also could be oblivious, uh, to, uh, a lot of things. Uh, he became better as he got older. I mean, the stories about the towels and stuff, that all goes back to when he was in college. He's living in a fraternity house. Uh, not exactly, you know clearly defined rules about, you know, what, <laughs> no. how people is, you know, is, I mean, John did, he bought a pig at one point and put it in the basement, which may have gone, may have stepped over the line a little bit. But What did you do? What John, did he do with the pig? I want to know about this pig. <laughs> he just did it. He just bought it as a joke. Um, and uh, so he fed the pet. thing. <laughs> I mean, what, oh, what, yeah, he kept, uh, it as, he kept it as a pet. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and then when enough people complained about it, he returned it. Um, and it was a big pig. It was a wasn't like a little pet pig that you pick up and carry. It was one of these big, three hundred pound pigs. This is one of the most exciting things in the interview. Forgive me, but I, I just love the eccentricity <laughs> of it. It's just great. Yeah, it what other things is. like that? Now, now, now we're getting somewhere with some very interesting <laughs> facets. What other weird things did did uh, our beloved uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. do? Weird things. Yeah. Uh, you know, he would. So John would, for example, uh, he had a close friend named Pat Benafia and. John um, told him he wanted him to come to Martha's Vineyard. And Pat was like, I can, I'm working, I can't take off from work. And John said, please, and I'd like for you to come. So the generous side of John, John bought him tickets. He bought the round-trip tickets for him to go to Martha's Vineyard so he could spend the weekend at his mom's house. That's great. So Pat's all excited. So Pat goes, you know what, I'm taking off work. I mean, how many opportunities will I have to do this? So he arrives at the airport, and there's no John. <laughs> so <laughs> okay. He calls the house, yeah. and uh, and John's mom answers. And uh, and she said, oh, no, Pat. She said, are you coming to visit us? And Pat said, actually, I'm here. I'm at the airport. And she said, and John's not there? And he says, no. And she says, stay there. So Mrs. Onassis comes driving by in her Jeep <laughs> wow. and picks up Pat. And they go to a grocery store and they buy a few things and they go to the house and then they get there. John comes sauntering up from the beach and, um, and he makes these excuses. And he says to Pat, well, you know, you didn't tell me you were coming. And Pat said, you bought me the tickets. You know what plane I was going to be on. So John, that's how, that goes, it shows, it shows you both sides of John. Yes. The so, generous side yes. and the absent-minded side. Right. Okay, so it's just absent-mindedness, as you say, and and not indifference to people, but just forgetfulness and a kind of a celavy, yeah. relaxed state of mind. There was nothing malicious about John. In your estimation, would he have pursued the presidency at some point, or at least entered public office, and would he have succeeded? Um, a lot of questions there. So first of all, 
John, by 1999, had made the decision that he wanted to get into politics. There was absolutely no doubt about that. And he was talking to a small group of, very small group of people about that possibility. When Daniel Patrick Moynihan resigned, uh, I, I chose not to run. Mm-hmm. That Senate seat was going to be open in 2000, and John's uncle came to him and said, you know, that the seat is yours if you decide to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, John decided he wasn't ready yet, uh, and a lot of it has to do with his wife. He didn't think that Carolyn could handle a, you know, him getting into a, a race, so he passed on that one. Uh, and John didn't want to be in the Senate. He saw himself as an executive, so he wanted to be governor. So the, the race that he was talking about was the New York governor's race in mm-hmm. 2001. He'd be running against George Pataki, who was kind of a milquetoast Republican. Mm-hmm. Um so would he have would he have won? The problem is John had a lot of problems he was dealing with. You know, his magazine was failing, his marriage was falling apart, his best friend was dying. So uh, I think John would have had to process those things and work through them. You know, John always said he didn't want to run for office because his last name was Kennedy. He wanted to run because he accomplished something. Well, if his magazine fails, that was what. That was going to be the platform he was going to run on, that he created this magazine that's successful. Right. So that would have been difficult for him. Had he made it to the petty run uh, and won election as governor, I have absolutely no doubt that barring some other event, uh, and certainly life is full of twists and turns, uh, as we know, in John's case, tragic twists and turns, uh, I think he would have run for president probably, I mean, oddly enough, in 2008. Well, unfairly, because of his fame, any uh, situation which wasn't successful, for instance, we all know, or many people know, I should say at least, that he uh, attempted to pass the bar for New York State uh, and twice failed. Having had George, the magazine, failing uh, on the heels of that would have been certainly detrimental to his public persona. Given that all these things were in spin and not doing terribly well a month prior to his death, do you think that played into, if you will, the folly of deciding to fly in rather bad weather? No, I don't. Okay. Because um, John was John was always optimistic. I mean, John, before he went on uh, that trip, he had called a close friend. Mm-hmm. and said he had a business opportunity he wanted to talk to him about, uh, and that friend was waiting for him um, at uh, at Martha's Vineyard. And so John and John had come to terms with Anthony dying. Um, he was talking openly about uh, making George primarily an online magazine, um, which would have been way ahead of its time. Yes, but, for 1999, so John, absolutely. That's right. So John was always optimistic, always looking forward, always looking for solutions. So I don't think that uh, that his that any of these issues that were weighing on him uh, had anything to do with his tragic death. I think that John 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 was reckless. Yeah. John was reckless. Um, I, I've driven in cars with John um, and they were some of the scariest moments of my life. I mean John was a risk taker. Did, did, did he feel impervious to bad things happening to him, which is kind of ironic given his family's circumstance? Yeah, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I spoke to a 
I mean, one of the things that always stood out in, in, in my friendship with John was that I always noticed this streak that he liked doing risky things. Um, and so I, I, I went, I met with a, a child psychologist at Columbia university, uh, in New York, who, who specializes in childhood trauma. Mm-hmm. And she, with the way she explained it to me is that people, young kids respond to trauma in different ways, but, but certainly John endured a lot of trauma. Uh, an ongoing trauma. I mean, the very presence of the Secret Service was a daily reminder mm-hmm. of the tragedy that he had faced. So, you know, one of the ways I think that John responded to danger was, number one, he knew that life could be short and that you had to live it to the fullest, which is why John never sat still. Uh, but I think in some ways he was drawn to I me. Mean, it's like a, it's an odd thing, but sometimes people who experience tragedy and trauma as a child are drawn to that the very same type of trauma. Well, I understand um, it's, it's like alcoholics who become comfortable with chaos in their life. And so yeah. um, when things are even settled sometimes, and I'm not trying to indict all persons who have overcome any type of dependence, but it is right. a known fact that some people who have overcome a dependence, uh, an addiction, sometimes subconsciously will also create additional chaos because it's the norm for how they've learned Mm. to deal with things. So I Mm -hmm. can understand fully what you're saying. You're suggesting here that he was, in fact, uh, most people would say flirting with danger, but there was some degree of attraction to it uh, and satisfaction of of having got by, by the skin of their teeth, uh, and evidently with you driving with him. And he always survived. John, uh, Christina Haig. Well, he didn't always survive, but... Well, uh, until that moment. Yes. But Christina Hay wrote this wonderful book about John, and she talks about how she was his uh, former girlfriend. And she talked about how they were kayaking, and they got caught further out than they had expected to be. And they were kayaking in. There was this sharp coral that they had to go over and a rock that was in their way. And they both felt there was a good chance they were going to die, that they would hit the rock and fall into this sharp coral and just and bleed to death. And But they, John said there, he said, just do what I do, stick with me, we're going to make it, we're going to make it. And the Christina describes it as they're, they're paddling, they're paddling, and just as they're about to hit this rock, a wave comes and lifts them up and lifts them over the rock. And I think that happened a lot in John's life. And yes. that night when he took off... Yes. You know, he, the reason why John didn't call for help was that that way he was expecting that wave. That situational optimism. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And it just never happened. And, 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 uh, and I, and, and that's, you know, I wish there had been that something comparable to a wave that night. If you're just joining us and have been listening to us, perhaps you have been listening to Watching America. My guest is Stephen M. Gillen. He is the author of America's Reluctant Prince, The Life of John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, It's been delightful speaking to you. I want to conclude, Stephen, by asking you the following question. What did you love genuinely? What did you love most about this man? Ah. I'm sorry. I just, I just, it's too. I, okay. I'm sorry. Would you like a moment, or, or you just literally cannot answer it? Give me a minute. Okay. Hold on.
You know, I um, I love this decency. And I tell a story at the end of the book about um, where I developed these uh, twitches in my arm, my hand, my left hand, and and I went to on the Friday before John died. I went to see the head of neurology at the University of Oklahoma, and we went to this long exam. And I had already this is the beginning of the internet, and I would I did what everyone does when they think they have an illness, they get on the internet and find the worst possible thing and diagnose themselves. And I assumed I had Parkinson's disease. And I after the interview was over, I I asked the doctor, I said, do I have Parkinson's? And he said, no, but you could be in the early stages of ALS, which is you know, just words you don't want to hear. Mm. And that was that mm. Friday afternoon. And I I went home that Friday, by myself that evening, and I went, I just, I spoke to one friend, and I just said, tell no one, I was going to have a series of tests the following week, which would decide one way or another. I mean, no official diagnosis for ALS, the whole series of, of tests you go through, but I would know more next week. So just, I just needed to tell somebody. And I went out for a walk, and I came back, it was like 9.30 at night, and there's two messages on my head I seen. And so I said, Stevie, it's John. I hear we have some things we need to talk about. Uh, <laughs> call me. And I just wasn't in the mood to talk about it. So the second message was, Stevie, you know, it's 9 o'clock on a Friday night. I know you're, You never go out on a Friday night. I know you're home, so call me. Mm. And, um, and, I, and I, I went to bed. Yes. And uh, 7.30 the next morning, the phone rings, and I... I'd sort of lost, I'd forgotten everything that happened the day before. And I think he was calling me at 7.30 in the morning. And I pick it up and said, hello. And I said, Stevie, it's John. Uh, and he said, I hear we have some things we need to talk about. And he chuckled, <laughs> letting me know that he knew yes, everything already. Yes, right. Yeah. So I told him, you know, everything. And he, uh, I'll never forget, he said, Stevie, for better or worse, my family is very well connected in New York medical circles. So if there's anything you need, you tell me. And then there was a pause. And he said, Stevie, should I take care of you? Wow. And just to make sure I heard it, he said it again. He said, Stevie, I'll take care of you. Wow. Wow. That's the Saturday morning. The following Saturday morning, I wake up and find out his plane is missing. And I'm helpless to do anything. Here's a guy who was willing to move heaven and earth a week earlier to help me. And I could do nothing for him. And that you have. compounded the tragedy. You have. I respectfully disagree, Stephen. Stephen M. Gillen, you have done much for him. You have written an ode of love and perception. America's Reluctant Prince is the title of the book, The Life of John F. Kennedy, Jr. Stephen, I have to tell you, it's been a delight to talk to you but it's been wondrous to encounter your humanity and the humanity of your friend, John. And what you have succeeded in doing today on Watching America is you have made an abstract figure that we had formerly seen on the cover of People magazine close to ourselves because he was close to you. And you have remembered him and recorded him so well. Thank you. That means a lot to me. You've done a lot for him. Thank you so very much, sir. Bless you. Thank you. And um, when you. you have another work, please don't hesitate to let us know. I'd love to have another conversation with you. Thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for being a friend Travel down a road and back again Your heart is true You're a pal and a confidant been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Our executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Heather Mazzoni is chief of content and Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I am the series creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.